If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Reveal. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. The story of the Trojan War, featuring the daring Achilles, beautiful Helen and one very deceptive horse, is a classic of Western literature. But did the Trojan War ever really happen? And was Troy even a real place? On today's Everything You Wanted to Know podcast, we're delving into these ancient mysteries. To answer your questions on Troy, I spoke to Professor Paul Cartledge, a classicist and expert in Greek culture at the University of Cambridge. Thank you so much for joining me, Paul, to talk about the history of Troy. So I wanted to start us off with a really broad question, which I think will be in a lot of people's minds when we're beginning this conversation. Delaga Boy on Instagram has asked, was Troy an actual place or did it only exist in myth and legend? I think that's a very good opening question. Thanks to the listener who sent that in. It is both. And you and I, Ellie, we will go through this and we will discuss it in more detail why I answer that it is both. So in other words, the myth legend is the real evidence. Remember, I'm a historian as opposed to uh, a literary critic. But nevertheless, though there is uh, a legend arising from written texts, both in Greek and in Latin, the archaeology, that is the material evidence, is not yet there absolutely to clinch the fact, as the Greeks and Romans assumed it was a fact, that there was once upon a time a Trojan War, that is a war of Greeks, Hellenes, going to a place called Troy, somewhere in Asia, in fact in what we would call today northwest Turkey. So it is both a myth and uh, a real place. And later on, I'll say more about what the real place is on which the legend is ultimately based. So a bit of a murky um, line to draw there. But I wonder if you could give us a little bit more context there, Paul. So if we're talking about Troy, what time period are we talking about? And you mentioned there Turkey. Um, Could you place that for us kind of in the ancient world? 
So, no Turkey in the ancient world. Of course, Turkey is so-called because of the Turks who took over what is today the very westernmost part of Asia. And if you can imagine yourself in the Dardanelles, that is what the ancient Greeks called the Hellespont, a narrow channel going up towards the Black Sea from the Aegean Sea. So we're in northwest Asia or Asia Minor, and the site, which we all now agree is the ultimate historical basis of the legend, the myth, the site overlooks the Hellespont. So before we delve into things in a bit more depth, a final bit of context. How were the Trojans or how was Troy connected to Greece and the Greek world at this time? Because that's a really major relationship here, isn't it? Right. Now, let me give you a bit of chronology, that is, try to fix it in time. The earliest literary evidence for a Trojan War, and it's the one that's dominated the tradition, is the epic poem, The Iliad, by or attributed to a poet, a Greek poet called Homer. Now, we historians of ancient Greece dispute amongst ourselves whether there was really just one poet Homer, who did the whole thing, or was the one extraordinarily brilliant poet who brought together lots of earlier stuff and made it into a great epic poem. Well, whatever the answer to that, it wasn't before the 8th or 7th century BC that anybody called Homer or an epic called the Iliad could have been written down because it was only then that Greeks developed an alphabetic script. So you have an epic poem, either late 8th century BC or early 7th century BC. It presupposes there was once a Trojan War, that it took place in a place called Troy, which is some way away from where Greeks live because they have to go on a major expedition with the implication that it took time to get together this huge fleet and uh, it took some time to get there. But actually, and this is where I remember I'm going to give you a little bit of a sceptical view of this whole thing in terms of history. Actually, it only took two or three days to sail from mainland Greece to the Hellespont. Very, very implausible that they should have spent 10 years before this city of Troy. So, The chronology is 8th century, 7th century text presupposing, now this is where archaeology comes in, if there was a Trojan War, something like Homer presupposes there was, well then if it ever happened, it would have happened in what we call the 13th century BC or BC, so the 1200s. So the time frame is between, let's say, 1300 and let's say 700. That's what the Greeks, who were the first listeners to this epic uh, or versions of it earlier than the formally written or um, developed version, the Iliad that we have, that was what they would have been dealing with. They're living in the 8th or 7th century and they're imagining a time some four or 500 years before their own time. I realise that we've kind of launched into the Iliad and the story of the Trojan War, but I wonder if you could just give us maybe the real key 
points of the Trojan War. It's called the Trojan War because it's looked at from the Greek side. If you were a Trojan, it's the Greek War. Very crudely, very briefly, the story is one of Cherchez la femme, seek the wife or the woman. A prince from this uh, kingdom, whose capital is Troy, somewhere far away, but in Asia, let's put it broadly, comes on a diplomatic mission uh, or a visit to Greece, to mainland Greece, and he finds himself in Sparta, where he's entertained by the king. King is Menelaus, who is brother, younger brother, of the overlord, the great king, the high king of pretty much all mainland Greece, who's called Agamemnon. Does Helen go willingly or is she raped? There are variant versions. At any rate, Paris leaves um, Sparta, not just with what he came, but also with Helen, whom he, of course, takes back to his father, Priam's palace in Troy. Menelaus is incensed, persuades his uh, brother Agamemnon to raise a massive expedition involving kings of Greece as far west as, for example, Ithaca, where Odysseus is king, and from as far north as Thebes in central Greece. And they gather together over a thousand ships, and they leave from central Greece, a place in Boeotia called Aulis, and they sail off to Troy, where they find a very well-defended city, which is not willing to give Helen up. And so they sit down to besiege it. And this is now where possibly poetic exaggeration um, kicks in. They besiege it for 10 years until finally Odysseus, king of Ithaca, comes up with a plan. Look, we're not battering down the walls. We're not conquering them in the We're not killing enough of them that they want to surrender. How are we going to get into the citadel to get Helen out? Trojan horse. And that broadly is the story. The Trojan horse trick works. Enough Greek warriors are brought, wheeled into the city to cause mayhem and to conquer and then um, to get back Helen to capture key Trojan women, but also to set fire to, to destroy utterly the citadel of uh, and the city of Troy. That, in brief, is the story of the Trojan War. So that leads me on nicely, actually, to a question from C.S. Bailey, who has asked, is the Iliad based on truth? That's what you've been grappling with there in that answer. So if we can't see it, like you suggest, as a straight historical document, what should we see the Iliad as? Again, as I answered the first question, it's both a myth, legend, and um, in some way a real place, Troy. In the same way, the story is both um, legend and um, possibly got a real basis. So Imagine we take a a kind of literalist, let's say we're believers, we want to believe. And of course, most ancient Greeks and then later Romans, absolutely convinced that it really did happen. Well, now what you have is a prince from an alien um, culture and political environment interfering in the Greek sphere and seducing a princess. Well, that sort of thing 
did go on. Uh, that's to say there are historical documents of the late Bronze Age, not Greek, but um, Hittites, people whose kingdom was based in, in or near what is today Ankara, the actual capital of Turkey. So quite a long way east in uh, Asia, Asia Minor. They really did um, go about swapping wives and stealing wives because it was a, a way of conducting warfare. So it's not absolutely impossible that something like the scenario of the Trojan War could have happened. But as I say, all we have as evidence is the literary text of Homer's Iliad and the text that then depended on it. Simon Beale has asked a really interesting question about the Iliad. As you say, this was intended for a, a Greek audience about four or 500 years later. So Simon Beale has asked, when hearing the story of the Trojan War being told, who were the Greeks listening supposed to be rooting for? Now, that's a very good question. <laughs> um, let me make this point first. It's a, a, a verbal point. There were no Greeks either in Homer or um, generically anywhere in the ancient Greek world. The word Greek comes from the Romans, and the Greeks called themselves Hellenes. In Homer, the people we call the Greeks are called by three different names, Achaeans, Danaeans, and Argives or Argians. Well, there are explanations one can give for all of those, but just a very important point to make. Homer does not use the word, which is the standard word for Greeks, that is Hellene, in the Iliad. Now, who were they rooting for? Well, obviously the Greeks. And um, it's a, a part of a series of myths and legends. This is not the only one. So Agamemnon, who is the brother of the king whose wife Helen is stolen or seduced away, Agamemnon has his own bunch of legends. When he comes back from Troy, he's been away 10 years. His wife has been unfaithful to him while he's been away. And when he gets back and he's full of, you know, we made it, we got Helen back, we defeated, we smashed the Trojans, she murders him. Well, that gives rise to a whole slew of other legends. So in other words, the Trojan War is part of, it's central to, a whole um, bunch of ancient Greek myth and legend. And therefore, the Greeks would, in terms of Greeks v Trojans, absolutely no question on whose side they are. On the question of Agamemnon against his wife, Clytemnestra, uh, whose side would they take? That's another story. So uh, in terms of the Iliad, the, the Trojan War, it becomes a kind of national epic. It's one of the ways in which Greeks identify themselves as being different from, and ideally superior to, all non-Greeks. And later on, there is a word which the Greeks develop, and it's barbarian. Well, to begin with, that simply means we don't understand your language. Your language sounds unintelligible. Ba, 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 ba. 
Later, it comes to mean you are barbaric and you are barbarous. In other words, you're culturally inferior, you're nasty, you do things we wouldn't do, you live in ways we wouldn't live. So the Trojan epic is at the centre of, at the beginning of, an immense complex of Greek cultural history, Greek cultural values. Well, Nathan Bayless has asked, what is it about the story of the Trojan War that's made it endure in the popular imagination for so long? Would that be your answer, that it engendered the sense of Greek superiority? It's partly that, but initially, of course, it has to capture the imagination of the listener. And remember, this is the product of an oral tradition. Over several centuries, different poets are elaborating on common theme or themes. And the brilliance of, well, let's call him, and it will be a him, Homer. The brilliance of the Homer who composed the Iliad, it's not about the Trojan War, or let me be a little more um, um, realistic, it is about the Trojan War, but it's selective, because the very first line invites the muse, that is, one of the goddesses who inspire poets, to inspire the poet to talk about, to write a poem about the anger of Achilles. Just one of the Greek leaders, a king, um, massively um, charismatic and uh, terrifically brave, and one might also say very savage warrior. But the poem is not really the Iliad in the sense that it's about the siege and capture of Troy. The, the epic poem, the Iliad, does not include the fall of Troy. A lot of people don't realise that. It includes the way in which, to begin with, Achilles is angered by his overall commander Agamemnon because Agamemnon deprives Achilles of a woman whom Achilles thinks he deserves. But Agamemnon says, no, I'm going to have her because I'm your commander and I demand her. And this is a, a woman called Briseis, of whom Achilles was very, very fond, even though she was a war captive. It ends not with the fall of Troy, as you might have predicted, but with reconciliation between the king of Troy, who's been defeated, Priam, and Achilles, who has killed killed Priam's eldest son, the crown prince Hector, and has treated his corpse abominably. It's very interesting, a, a Greek poem that shows a Greek behaving badly. So it's not uniformly, you know, we Greeks are in every way wonderful, but Greek values are good, you've got to live up to them. And at the end, at any rate, Achilles and Priam are reconciled. Priam kisses Achilles' hands, the hands that have killed his son. And that's how the epic ends with then looking forward to what's going to happen to the women of Troy, his widow as she becomes, and uh, his daughters, and so on and so on. So it's a very, very subtle uh, poem, which is one of the reasons why it is um, an absolute masterpiece. The extraordinary thing is it's the earliest written text from the whole of the Western, that is European, European American literary tradition. That's so fascinating because I think a lot of people listening will be saying, hang on a minute, this isn't the story that I know. In the story that most people are familiar with, the probably the most 
famous instance from the Trojan War is, of course, the Trojan horse. So that's a completely different story. Where does that come from? Well, it's not completely different. Um, there is a sometimes called a sister epic, also attributed by the ancient Greeks to the same Homer, and it's called the Odyssey, and it's named after its hero, Odysseus, a king of a relatively small kingdom on the far western side of Greece, on the island of Ithaca. Um, Achilles comes from mainland Greece, and really the Iliad should be called the Achilleid, not the <laughs> Iliad. Anyway, um, so in that, the, the hero is Odysseus, and the poet makes Odysseus actually receive sight quite a lot of the poem. So he's on his way back from Troy, and eventually it takes him 10 years to get back to his island. At any rate, um, he's at a, a palace, um, a non-Greek palace, and very interestingly, they all speak Greek. I mean, they all understand each other without any question, no mention of translators. Odysseus is reciting his adventures since he's um, left Troy after the fall of Troy. And among his adventures, um, he recites the fall of Troy. And so that's where we learn that uh, it was his idea, the, the Trojan horse, and that it was made by a certain Greek craftsman and so on and so on. There's lots of elaborate detail. I'll give you just one instance. Um, Helen, who is... Um, the captive queen who has either committed adultery, been seduced, or been captured. At any rate, she's been in Troy, uh, according to this version, for 10 years. Well, she goes around the horse, and she can hear the Greeks speaking inside it, and she recognises a number of them by their voice. I mean, it's a most extraordinary scenario. At any rate, of course, the stupid Trojans, I mean, this is possibly a Greek slur on the stupid stupidity of the Trojans, but the Trojans think that it is a religious symbol and that therefore it should be worshipped, therefore it should be brought inside the walls and the rest is history. That is how Troy eventually falls, not due to Greek weaponry, you know, battering rams or any other kind of cannonballs. Or, they didn't have them. Uh, it falls through treachery deception for which Odysseus is famous. Now, treachery, deception. It's okay if it works on your side, but if it's done to you, that's not so wonderful. So it's another case where the moral values are up for grabs. I mean, they're not straightforward. These poems are very subtle um, culturally, ethically. So we've spoken about Achilles, and Tommy Ronco has asked, was Achilles a real person. And I guess I would broaden that out to say, are there any figures in the story that we, we can say are really based on historical people? Or are they all more symbolic? That's a very, very good question. And as I say, it's not one of those that I can answer very straightforwardly. Insofar as the epic is fiction, um, that's to say it's created by a bunch of poets, and the last of them may have been called Homer. Well, yes, Achilles is merely or only or principally a literary fiction. He is a character in a drama. But would there have been real Greeks in the 13th century? Remember I said that's when, if there was a Trojan War, it would have happened. 
are the likely to have been, is it conceivable that in the 13th century BC there was a prince, a king, a daredevil, daring do, a kind of, um, you know, a Marvel comic hero almost, which is how he's presented. Not impossible, but there is absolutely no way of documenting him personally. In other words, there are Greek literary texts, there are Greek written texts of that period. There are contemporary texts from the Hittite kingdom, which mention people who some of us think, I'm not sure, I'm not really a sufficiently skilled linguist, could conceivably be referring to Greek characters on the west coast of what is now Turkey. And so, you know, there is the possibility that already in the 13th century, an Achilles-type figure became so famous that his legend was transmitted from that moment on. But there is, as I say, absolutely no positive proof that an Achilles, a real Achilles, ever existed. And finally, on the point of the wars, we've spoken a lot about textual evidence, but Jeff Sproston has asked whether there's any archaeological evidence that backs up the story that Homer presents of the Trojan War. No, this is what those who want to believe there was really some sort of major conflict involving a particular site which has been excavated since the 1870s. They want desperately, therefore, to have a sign of a destruction level and a level in which there'd be lots and lots, or at least significant amounts, of Greek, Mycenaean Greek, late Bronze Age Greek weaponry. And to my knowledge, just one single I think it is a dagger or a spearhead of bronze. Of course, remember, we're in the Bronze Age, and Homer's quite right. He, he regularly talks about bronze armour and weapons, though occasionally refers also to iron, but that's another issue. So as of now, there is absolutely not you know, a single shred, really, of positive archaeological evidence to say, yes, the Trojan War did happen. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. So as with, as I've said before about Homer's epic, there's a moral tale here. It's not just what happened and how exciting, but what's its meaning for us in terms of how should we live when we hear these epic tales. They are, in fact, moral tales as well as epic in our modern sense of epic, that is, um, dashing deeds of great uh, heroism. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. 
Well, let's talk now then about the archaeological evidence we do have for Troy the place. So a lot of people on Google search, where is Troy today? Yes, that's a, a fair question. And um, the word Troya was in current parlance in ancient Greek outside Homer, and it referred to a very particular city in northwest, as I said, Turkey, northwest Anatolia, northwest Asia Minor, overlooking the Hellespont. And it is where the Greeks themselves identified the site of what the poets were going on about, because in the 8th century BC, and this was part of a much wider population movement, Greeks had been leaving mainland Greece permanently to go settle on the other side of the Aegean, so on the uh, eastern side of the Aegean, in what's now Turkey. And one group of them settled what they thought was ancient Troy. And they called their town. Now, the ancient Greeks had two words, either Ilion, which is where Iliad comes from, I-L-I-O-N, or Troia, T-R-O-I-A. So, in that sense, from the 8th century BC, really there should never have been any doubt as to where Troy was. But, you're going to ask me, OK, why was there ever any doubt in modern times? Well, that's what MHFQ on Instagram wants to ask you. How did the site of Troy become lost? Right. Well, think about it. We're talking in terms of the um, 8th century BC. That's nearly 3,000 years ago. Well, a lot of Greek history went on. The Romans conquered the Greek world, so that the eastern half of the Roman Empire from the second century BC was predominantly Greek, Greek-speaking, that segued into, we call it the later Roman Empire, so the last centuries, 4th, 5th, 6th century BC, and that then becomes Byzantium. That in turn, the Byzantine Empire, shrank and shrank and shrank between the 6th century CE, common era, or AD Anno Domini, uh, until the 15th century when it was conquered, what remained of the Byzantine Empire, by the Ottoman Turks. Well, the Ottoman Turks had no interest or very little interest whatsoever in ancient Greek history. And they looked east more than they looked west most of the time. At any rate, ancient Greek history, European history, was relatively unimportant. So the site of Troy was uninhabited, abandoned, and um, the memory of it lost. And it wasn't until really the 18th century when people started to get very interested again in ancient Greece. This is um, after uh, the revival of interest much more in ancient Rome in the early modern period. 18th century on, people started going to what was still the Ottoman Empire was rather risky and looking for the site of Troy. And there was indeed a, an Englishman in the 18th century, a man called Robert Wood, and he pretty much got it right. And then in the middle of the 19th century, a local consul, he too, you know, sank a trench or two in and found um, ancient Greek Troy. But it wasn't until the 1870s along comes a Prussian businessman, 
absolutely passionate about Homer, Heinrich Schliemann. Juan on Twitter has asked about Heinrich Schliemann. He specifically asked about um, him using TNT to <laughs> discover Troy. But I wonder if you could talk a bit more generally about Schliemann's discovery of Troy and his excavation of the site. Did he use TNT? <laughs> well, he certainly used dynamite. And um, he hired uh, a railway engineer to drive a massive trench uh, through this great big mound. And you've got to remember that um, ancient cities, if they're inhabited for many, many millennia, as this was, builds up, builds up, each layer higher and higher. So you get a mound. And the only issue was, is this mound, Troy, or is that, you know? So um, eventually, as I say, Frank Calvert and then Heinrich Schliemann between them absolutely proved that Hisselik, which is the name of the, the mound, Hisselik, uh, was indeed Troy. Schliemann himself was uh, a businessman, a very successful um, trader, basically. He traded in North America, for example, in furs. He made a fortune, so he's a multimillionaire. And from a very young age, so he tells us, but he was a bit of a fantasist, he'd always been fascinated by the Trojan legend and conceived this desire to, now this is me speaking, prove that Homer wasn't just an epic poet, but he was a historian. In other words, that there really had been a Trojan War and that Homer was its, as it were, poetic historian. And that's where Schliemann and I somewhat part company in our interpretation. At any rate, Schliemann acquired, I don't believe he, she was his first wife, but second wife who was Greek. And early on in his excavations, because remember he'd gone way, way down, and in archaeology the further down you go, the earlier you go. He'd hit upon a rather nice um, set of jewellery. Now, we, sceptical um, archaeologists, know that this is actually 3rd millennium BC. So we're talking about 2500 BC, i.e. about 1200 years uh, before the 13th century that I've been talking about. If there ever was a real Trojan War, it would have happened in the 13th. He, Schliemann, to begin with, thought, right, I found the jewels of Helen of Troy. And so he decks out his Greek, much younger Greek wife with this jewellery. She looks a bit ridiculous because no one would have worn quite so much at once. He has her photographed. Remember, photography was just coming in in the 1870s. I mean, it had been invented a couple of decades before, but was becoming common. And then had that picture circulated as proof that he had found Helen's Troy. Well, it took him a long time to be convinced. I'm not sure he ever really was, that actually he got it rather wrong, chronologically, chronographically. You, you spoke there about the, the layers within this mound and the different eras that they represented. And that's something that Catherine, um, one of our listeners, has asked about. So she asked um, what we can learn from the multiple archaeological layers of Troy. What eras of the city do they represent? 
That's a very good question indeed. And we now, and I say this is after further excavation in the 1950s, an American team, and then much more recently, 1980s and so on, a German team. So the knowledge of that mound and its layers is now really very sophisticated compared with Schliemann's very crude um, understanding of it. So we now think there were at least nine cities. And each of them are divided using letters of the alphabet. The ones that matter for us, because they're 13th century, are six, that is city six, level H, six H, and city seven, level A. So if there was the Trojan War, Sometime in the 13th century, we should look for it. We should look at the horizon. What was the city like in 6H and 7A? Well, 6H, massive walls. And that is a, a really important point because it does indeed lend credence to the idea that Troy was very, very hard to take by siege. The German excavation I mentioned has also found a much bigger penumbra, a much bigger city surrounding the central citadel than had been thought before. So this is a very substantial settlement, not at all easy for anybody to conquer with the kind of um, tools available in the 13th century. Now, it used to be said that 7a fits better chronologically with what's going on in mainland Greece. In other words, the peak of what we call Mycenaean or Late Bronze Age civilization is the second half of the 13th century, 1250 to 1200, 7a, whereas 6h goes back to about 1300. So, the problem with 7a is that actually it's relatively small compared with 6h. There seems to have been some catastrophe. So people thought initially, ah, the walls have come down at the end of 6h. That must be the Greek Trojan uh, invasion. Absolutely no evidence for it. And the consensus now is the cause of that destruction is an earthquake because this is a very earthquake-prone region. 7A is re-inhabited, it continues, but it's a smaller affair. So if the Greeks attack 7A, actually that would make sense. You wait till the Troy is in a weakened position, then you have a go at it. So unfortunately, as I say, there is no positive archaeological evidence for mainland Greek intervention in the 13th century. So in... For these next questions, I wonder if we could focus on um, the prime era of Troy, as it were. So Hugh Berkmeyer, Toby and Franchise 505 have asked how important Troy was and, and how it fit into a larger political picture of the Mediterranean at the time. Right. Now, this is where I go back. First of all, I'll look at Troy in its own terms, but uh, the site of Hisalik in its own terms later. The geopolitical situation is you have in that part of uh, Anatolia a major kingdom 
based much further east, near Ankara, as I say, a place called Hattusas. We call it the Hittite Empire. Interestingly, also speaking and writing a, an Indo-European language, which is like Greek, which belongs to the Indo-European family. And they preserved on clay, as indeed the Greeks, uh, administrative records. And in their records, the Hittite um, texts, written in cuneiform, wedge-shaped letters, the um, decipherers have found a name, Willusa. Now, Willusa has sounded to some experts a bit like Wilion, because ancient Greek Elion originally had a worse sound before the I. So Wilion, is that the Hittite Wilusa? Well, it may be. And if that's the case, then Troy is the very furthest Western extension of the Hittite Empire, not actually having much, you know, daily, let alone minute-by-minute um, minute contact with the centre, but nevertheless possibly part of that imperial system. So far as the site itself is concerned, as I've already said, you've got on the one hand the citadel with its massive walling, and then you've got the lower town, and it overlooks the Hellespont. The topography has changed. The, the Hellespont, the waterway, is further away from Hisalik than it would have been in antiquity. So this would have been a city on the Hellespont. Brilliantly placed, and I think this is why it was placed there, not so much, not only because of its agricultural land. Most Greek and non-Greek cities of this time lived off agriculture. This is not a manufacturing manufacturing uh, culture. But it would have been placed there for, I believe, trade purposes, not mainly to export their own produce, because I believe they probably would have been largely self-sufficient. They wouldn't have needed or wanted to export, but to control other people wanting to trade up and down the Hellespont. And they would have been taxed. So we're talking about harbour dues. We're talking about import-export duty for, on traders who wanted to use the port and the facilities of um, what we call um, you know, the, the site of um, Hisalik, uh, ancient Troy. And Nicholas Sergis has asked about this trade. Um, and do we know about the kind of materials that would have been traded in this region at the time? Well, one can go no further than, as it were, generic speculation. So in other words, we know a lot about the Greek cities of that time. And we know the Greeks um, went in in a big way for, uh, on the one hand, crops. So we're talking about um, wheat, barley, and uh, olive oil, principally. Um, to some extent, wine, grapes. And then they're also very interested in perfumes, both the making of them and um, the exporting of them. We hear about um, the making of military equipment, so chariots and um, equipment for horses and weaponry, that sort of thing. So presumably, since the site of Troy 6H and Troy 7A looks very much like a Mycenaean Greek Acropolis citadel site. Since it's set on a big plain, you know, that's why it dominates agricultural land, I assume they had a redistribution 
Egypt economy somewhat similar to that of the Greeks in Mycenaean. But we've got no positive evidence because we've got no documents of the kind that we have from Mycenae or, in Hittite terms, from Hattusas, from Hisalik. Well, I imagine that lack of documents might make this next question a little bit more difficult, but it's a really interesting one from Irene Hogan, who's asked, do we know anything of Troy's culture, language or religion? Maybe we should start with language there. Yes, um, as I said earlier, and I think this is um, one of those, you know, $64,000 questions, if we lose, if Hisalik is we lose, if Troy is, in other words, within the Hittite sphere, and they understood Hittite or spoke a version of Hittite, then it's an Indo-European language. And one, one can go not much further than that, just saying it may have been like Hittite. But um, in Homer, as I've already said, there is no question of a language problem. So when Greeks and Trojans shout at each other, or in the case of Achilles and Priam, speak intimately face to face, neither of them has an interpreter present. And so um, in a way, I think this is actually possibly uh, true to fact, that is, certain Greeks at any rate would have known um, whatever the Trojans spoke and vice versa. I'm not saying it's universal, but there would be enough toing and froing. Remember how near Troy is to the Greek world. I mean, Homer tries to present this idea, it's a long way away. It isn't. <laughs> it's actually very near. And um, there is, I think, another point to that, which is that Homer, that is the poet, wants to emphasise that really the Trojans and the Greeks as people are not so very different from each other. So in other words, it's possible to admire a Trojan and not diss him, not just simply rubbish him because he's a bloody foreigner. And so Hector in the Iliad comes out um, as pretty heroic. And, you know, you'd sort of want to be like Hector no less than you'd want to be like um, Achilles or uh, Patroclus or any of the other Greeks on the on the Greek side. So there is one further point, which is religion, which is very properly asked about. Well, in Homer, it's assumed the Trojans' chief goddess was Athena. Now, it's not impossible that Athena as a goddess was um, spread, as we know Aphrodite was, throughout the Middle East. She was given different names in Greece, from in Egypt, from in Syria, but a version of a goddess with the characteristics of Aphrodite is, is known. So it's not impossible that there was a kind of common cultural understanding of a warrior goddess, a city goddess, such as Athena, being worshipped in uh, Troy as in Athens and in Sparta and so on and so on. So we can't say whether their religion was in any way similar to that of Mycenae and so on. We can say quite a lot about that, by the way, because we've got um, the text as well as a shrine. We haven't, to my knowledge, excavated a shrine, a religious sanctuary in Troy that would correspond to the one that's been excavated in Mycenae, for example. 
So many mysteries. Um, (laughs) Laura on Twitter has asked about whether we know anything about the role of women in Troy and whether they maybe had more or less or the same amount of autonomy as women in other cities um, in their day. Do we know anything about that? Well, because Troy is a singleton, i.e. the site of Hisselik, the archaeology, um, you can't say whether it was like or not like anywhere else. I mean, just it is there. We have no knowledge, in other words, about the social structure or even the political structure, let alone the imaginary view that Trojan men took of Trojan women. All we have are projections by ancient Greeks of Trojan princesses, Trojan queen, uh, ordinary Trojan women weeping and wailing and so on, as if they were Greeks. I mean, this is the point I made before, that Homer's Trojans are pretty much Greeks, um, just that they're Trojan. So, unfortunately, though we can say a certain amount about 13th century Mycenaean society and the role played by women, I'll give one instance, they could be priestesses, we can't say anything for sure about the women, the real women of Troy, if there was a real (laughs) Troy, as it were, in the 13th century BC. So, so much of what we've talked about, as you've made clear, comes through these Greek sources, really. Ranjith Kolonur has asked whether we have any non-Greek ancient sources that tell us about Troy. Yes. Well, there is, of course. And, um, I mean, this is not going to come as a surprise to many of you to hear. An entire epic tradition that is based on, that is unthinkable without the Homeric Greek tradition, but it is Latin and Roman, because the historical Romans, just like the historical Greeks, look back to Troy as a magic moment in their past, their real past. What a great event, what a great achievement. Well, the Romans slightly differently look back to Troy, the siege of Troy, as part of their founding moment in this sense that a Trojan called Aeneas, he's not a member of the Trojan royal family, he's a subject of the uh, kingdom of Troy, but an aristocrat. A defeated, therefore, Trojan is taken by much, much later Romans to be their founding ancestor. Now, To me, if I were a Greek, I would say, gosh, how strange to take a defeated person, a refugee, as your ultimate founding father, which is what they did. Anyway, that's what they did. And so in the first century BC, and now we're at the end of many centuries of Romans thinking about Troy, Uh, A poet called Virgil, Publius Virgilius Maro is his full name, who was a court poet of Rome's first emperor, Augustus, based on Homer's Iliad, but tweaking it very significantly, writes an Aeneid, so an, an epic poem in 12 books, named after Aeneas. That starts, that sparks off an entire literary tradition, and um, both visual and uh, written, of Roman tradition 
of Troy. So the Troy story from the first century BC on suddenly acquires a whole new non-Greek life. Medieval representations of the Trojan story, well, they ultimately derive more directly, the medieval ones, from Virgil, because the Renaissance and the medieval tradition Renaissance is a Latin Western rather than a Greek Eastern tradition. That leads us on perfectly to a question from the Fridland, which is, how was knowledge of Troy kept alive after the classical era? Was it mainly through the work of Virgil? Yes, and that's uh, in a in a word. Um, the the epic <laughs> poem, the Aeneid, was so captivating. The genius of uh, Virgil's poetry was such that it um, continued to be both um, learnt by heart, taught in schools. But the key thing is copied on um, in Egypt. It might be in uh, on papyrus, or in um, Western Europe, it would be on vellum, that is on parchment. And I'm now skipping over quite a few centuries. But in the British Library, and if you go on to the British Library's website, you'll get much more information than I can give you. But there are two manuscripts, illuminated manuscripts of the. 15th century, so the 1400s. One is called the Stowe Manuscript, and that's early 1400s. And the other is the Harley Manuscript, and that's late 1500s. And they talk about, it's in, they're both French, and um, in French, ancient history down to the time of Julius Caesar, or Chronicle of Ancient History. So we're dealing with luxury texts commissioned by aristocrats, wealthy men from specialist scribes who can illuminate, that is, draw lovely pictures, illuminating in, of course, contemporary, that is, 15th century, totally anachronistic dress, the siege of Troy, the fall of Troy, and the escape of Aeneas to become the founding father, ultimately, of Rome. So as with, as I've said before about Homer's epic, there's a moral tale here. It's not just what happened and how exciting, but what's its meaning for us in terms of how should we live when we hear these epic tales. They are, in fact, moral tales as well as epic in our modern sense of epic, that is, um, dashing deeds of great uh, heroism. And so my final question to you comes from 90 Penned, which is, what is it like to visit Troy today? Well, it's a big archaeological site, so it would be the same as visiting Mycenae today. So uh, there is on the British Museum's website, and I'll explain why uh, I, I go to that, a very nice aerial photograph of the site as it looks pretty much today. That is, ruins, but excavated, cleaned up, and possibly still ongoing, actually, in terms of German excavations. Um, as I've said, they've uh, uncovered a great deal of the lower town, as opposed to what Schliemann focused on, which was the big mound, which was the, the citadel, the central acropolis, as the Greeks would call it. But there is one way of getting a kind of vicarious um, sense of what the site's like and also what the archaeological evidence is like and also the tradition. Uh, for example, those illuminated manuscripts 
couple of years ago, the British Museum put on an exhibition which they called Troy Myth and Reality. And it produced, as often is the case, a wonderful exhibition catalogue. And I, I do recommend that, the British Museum's exhibition catalogue from their 2020 Troy Myth and Reality exhibition. That was Professor Paul Cartledge. His books include Democracy, A Life, and The Ancient Greeks, A Very Short Introduction. Paul has actually appeared on our Everything You Wanted to Know series before to speak about the ancient Greeks. And there was so much to cover in that episode that we had to split it into two parts. You can find those by searching for Ancient Greece in your podcast feeds. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Newitt.